we need to figure out what we can assign sorry to bother you for because i could talk about that movie heck yeah i love that seven movie. years uh, equisapian rights <laughs> everybody and welcome to did you do your homework the pop culture podcast which connects academic ideas to popular media i am one of your very capable co-hosts uh martha sullivan and today i am a movie aficionado and amateur movie critic um more of which you will hear about in a minute i am joined as always by my co-host uh, i'm pete romberg and i am getting pretty sick and tired of snow it is currently snowing again I'm I mm. like I I like snow I left the house this morning and I was like are you kidding me yes yes like it's winter time it's like snow fine that's all good whatever it just it keeps happening uh and then it melts (laughs) a little bit and then it's ice but also this winter like January lasted for 82 years so how much longer is it gonna be we're in like the Game of Thrones winter that lasts for (laughs) generations yes that is possibly true and i will go crazy if if it's snowing in april i'm just gonna be like all right where am i moving to yeah uh it's bananas and i don't care for it uh today we are joined by return guest and friend of the podcast sarah abeli sarah caputo pete (laughs) i I answer to both (laughs) well thank you so much for coming back on the show sarah happy to be here we are going to be talking about true crime uh later in the episode but first we have a chance to share with you guys what is stuck in our heads of pop culture this week um this is the part where we have a chance to share with you uh something we've been enjoying or something we haven't been enjoying but maybe can't stop thinking about uh just in general the pop culture thing that we have consumed last week that we just need to share with the world uh so pete what is stuck in your head this week i'm really glad you described this portion the way you did because (laughs) the book i'm reading fits both of those categories uh it's called krakatoa the day the world exploded by simon winchester um came out in 2003 uh and it's about uh, krakatoa uh, which was a volcanic island that exploded um, and caused, like, a six-month-long mini ice age. It was her, the explosion was heard thousands of miles away. The sky darkened in London, uh, and this, like, island is in, um, the, like, Indonesia. Um, so, uh, and, and this was in the 1890s, I think, 1880s, um, 1883. Uh, so it, it was sort of, like, the world's first global calamity at a time when there was global communication, um, people found out about it right away because of telegrams and such. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting subject. Um, and the author, Simon Winchester, is using it to sort of, like, ex, like explore and talk about everything, like the history of uh, Indonesia, um, plate tectonics. So it's a very wide-ranging book. But I really don't like the way he writes. Um, he is... Uh, British and Oxford educated and uh, like in the 60s and that's exactly what he seems like where he's just 
he's writing in a very flowery way. Uh, prose has never been so purple. Uh, in this, he'd probably call it Tyrian purple, dyed by the Murex snails uh, in ancient, uh, whatever, whatever, Phoenicia. Um, and he's also occasionally just, like, it, he, he writes in a very lordly British, talking about, oh, those, like, exotic natives of some tropical beach where the men wear grass skirts and the women go around naked and it, it's very like uh, it, it, it's a patrician racist sort of where like it's not actively racist it's more and you know everything else it's more just like oh we're this is just what we do um and so when I was this book written pete 2003 so like there's really no okay, excuse so... I was going to say, so actually, it, it is racist. Yeah, well, like, there's really, there's really no excuse for it, but it's... Also, it's racist racist. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it, it's, it's, it, it reads like somebody who doesn't know that they're being racist and thinks that they're being, like, clever. Um, and they're not. So it's, it's... I'm fascinated by what I'm learning and frustrated by the way I'm learning it. That is a very specific and good critique of something mm -hmm. i should say i feel like i read a book about krakatoa but it was like a long time ago but it was written like in the 30s oh wow but, but it was like a children's book or like the four it was really old it was a children's book and so when you were describing it i thought you were describing <laughs> that book for a second so here it was written in 2003 it's very jarring to me yes yes <laughs> uh sarah What's stuck in your head this week? Well, it's an unexpected one, actually. Um, I've I've always kind of liked the Beatles, um, but uh, I'm a, I'm a music teacher and an art teacher. And this week, um, I've been teaching the kids at my school a song that we're eventually going to learn to play on the ukulele. So I've like been trying to find some really kid friendly songs, and like the Beatles are just like where it's at. Um, so just like a deep dive back into their catalog, um, really listen to Blackbird, mm. like really intensely for the first time in a couple years. Um, and just like, it's just been really on my mind. Like even when I'm not at school teaching the kids, you'd think I'd be sick of it. And I'm still like playing it like in the car, um, like the white album particularly. Have so. you seen the trailer that just came out for the new Danny Boyle film? Yes, I was I just gonna ask yes. that. <laughs> it was weird. It's you know the conspiracy that you're you know that all the mics in your technology is listening to you. Mm. <laughs> like, I've been talking a lot about this with people because they're like, "Oh, what are you doing at work?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm doing this thing." And then like literally, one of after one of those conversations, that trailer popped up like on Facebook or something, and I was like, "Not only is this targeted at me, I think they made it because of me." <laughs> 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 that checks <Yeah>. out. <laughs> Yeah, that'll that's that's also very that the premise of that movie is so specific. I don't know how I feel about it, but I de I definitely did see that trailer. It, so it seems like a big swing, and I'm always excited by Danny Boyle's big swings. So I true. do enjoy Danny Boyle. Yeah, and I do enjoy the Beatles. So sounds should good. work out. <laughs> yeah, right. Should be solid. We'll see what happens. Should work out. Fingers crossed. Yes. Uh, so what's stuck in my head this week, um, yesterday was day one of the AMC Oscars showcase, uh, so I got to spend 
upwards of six hours in a movie theater. Um, I went by myself this year. I normally go with my family. Um, but they're all on vacation this weekend. So I went by myself, which actually was lovely. Um, but I got to watch The Favorite, Black Klansman, and Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that is stuck in my head, I'm really mad about it. Because the one that is stuck in my head is Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's mm. not because it was a good movie. Um, it is a bunch of incredible music videos strung together on the strength of Rami Malek's performance. But what's stuck in my head about it is all of the problems with it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I'm i trapped in this vortex of being mad about it, but I can't move on from that. <laughs> you have to process your anger. <laughs> I am. So, like, okay, first of all, I think we need to stop making biopics about people while they're still alive. And by that, I, of course, I'm not referring to Freddie Mercury. But Wait, the, he's dead? The rest of the... <laughs> we'll get back to that Um, for a sec um but the fact that the other band members had so much control over this movie i really think was a detriment to it Mm -hmm. because the way that this movie would have you kind of think about it is that there was basically no conflict between the band members and like everything got solved really easily and just a lot of things where it's like well i'm sure that's not how that happened Mm -hmm. um and then also so this movie was made by brian singer which is also something that i have a very large issue with Mm -hmm. um but the the scene that really the scene where i was like oh this is this movie is bad is when Freddie come what is when Freddie is talking to um the woman who would the woman he married for a while and then uh eventually divorced he tells her that he's bisexual and she says oh no you're gay mm. and I said why are we having a straight white woman explain mm-hmm. homosexuality to Freddie Mercury yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the movie is so concerned with making sure that you as the viewer know that he's gay, which I I did some reading about this because I couldn't remember if he had self-identified as bi or gay, and as far as I can tell, he never explicitly said either but maintained loving relationships with both men and women and if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck maybe don't commit by erasure mm-hmm. of the duck mm-hmm. um, and also like the the scenes that get into his life as a gay man are so riddled with self-loathing that i i cannot imagine that that is true to the way that he lived his life mm-hmm so that that was all very frustrating <laughs> for me um but also the musical see i mean it's queen yeah, so yeah, right. the musical sequences in this movie are so good <laughs> that even while i was watch, like even while i was getting mad about it in the theater i was like shoot i'm having a really good time watching this movie and uh, like the live aid con- they they recreate the live aid concert 
pretty much shot for shot. Mm-hmm. And it gave me chills because mm-hmm. no matter what way you look at it, it was a great concert and the music is great. And I wish that Freddie Mercury and Queen had gotten a better mm-hmm. film to to kind of showcase that stuff. Right. Yeah. You, you wish it was a better movie around which these uh, performance numbers could like happen. Yeah, especially because Rami Malek is great. And I think that one of the things the movie does get right is that, like, Freddie Mercury was a living legend who burned out too bright and too fast. Mm-hmm. Like, he's he's an icon in this movie. And that feeling, I do think the movie gets very right. It's just frustrating that it, it softballs all of the like interesting and hard edges and I think it could have been a much better and more interesting movie if it hadn't been so afraid of making sure that we all still loved Freddie Mercury and Queen at the end of it. Right. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. we were gonna. We, right. we were never <laughs> we were never not gonna we were never gonna stop loving him. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think I think the movie was afraid of that. Huh. My main the main Anything I knew about this movie, because I haven't seen it, and I, I know a lot of, I, I have heard a lot of people, it's kind of a similar reaction, like, oh, you know, um, you know, the musical performances are great, like, the acting is, is good. The only thing I know about it is there is a, a clip going around of a scene where there's a conversation between, like, the band and a record label, and it's about a one-minute scene, and there's something like 64 cuts, and so everyone's like, who edited this movie? <laughs> like, it rip- you know, yeah. so... I know very little about film editing, but yes, that scene, that scene sucks for a lot of reasons. <laughs> One of which is that the the record label guy is played by Mike Myers, and the point they're trying to sell him on Bohemian Rhapsody, and mm-hmm. he says, "No one is gonna headbang in their car to this song." See, there were so many cuts. On the I nose. couldn't. I couldn't tell that was Mike Myers. There were so many cuts. Like that's crazy yes. to me. Wow. Like sixty-four cuts in one minute is insanity. Wow. And that's yeah, I was on the like, nose. Yeah. Ugh. And yeah, it's like I already get the joke of Mike Myers turning down Bohemian Rhapsody. Like you don't have to explain the joke to me. Did he then look in directly? The of the <laughs> did, did he then directly look at the camera and wink? Like I and feel like that's. <laughs> one of the I mean one of the ways that 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 scene is filmed is like the camera um in I I don't know the names of any of these shots but it's a straight on shot of Mike Myers's face as he's behind a desk so he is kind of talking directly to the camera mm. when he does okay. this okay great great yeah so I would say I would say skip this movie and just watch the the YouTube clips of the this it yeah anything that involved the music like playing the music writing the songs they have a couple of great montages of them putting the songs together I don't know how true to life any of those were but they were a lot of fun um, when as you said like yeah. the living band members were like heavily involved in it so probably not like and- a kernel of true to life but not like you know. Very, very rosy, I'd imagine. Yeah, and, like, that's the reason they got access to the whole songbook, so it's kind of like, mm. I'm not mad about that, but also... Yeah. 
<laughs> don't don't take it at face value. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a short break. Uh, and when we come back, we are going to get into true crime and pop culture. are back uh today we are going to be digging into true crime uh and its place in popular culture um our homework spans the gamut of actual true crime um fictionalized true crime and satire of true crime (laughs) um but some of the things we're going to be discussing about or some of the things we're going to be discussing are um the demographics of true crime, who is creating and consuming this stuff, how has that changed recently, um, some of the accessibility of true crime, why it may, why it seems that true crime is undergoing uh, a renaissance in our pop culture right now, uh, and I, I would like to uh, discuss the morality of, mm. of true crime on how we consume it. Mm-hmm. So just some things to be thinking about um in the meantime i think it makes the most sense for me to start with uh with a uh the book that we read for this episode which was in cold blood uh, 1966 start at the very Uh, beginning of the uh the genre (laughs) yeah i think so so in cold blood was written in 1966 by truman capote uh it was not the first um, not the first instance of true crime because people have been writing and reading true crime for ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that as long as there have been people, there has been fascination with uh, crime and the people who commit it. But in cold blood, it is widely recognized as the first instance of somebody taking a true crime story and turning it into um, this kind of novelization format. Uh, so it's really written. Um, it's written like a novel uh, with characters and setting and dialogue and all of that. And it details the 1959 murders of the Clutter family um, by two would-be robbers. Um, the investigation of that and their eventual uh, death or their eventual eventual um, conviction and execution by the state. Um, had you guys read this before? I have not, actually. Yeah, I had not either. Um, I have not seen Capote, although that's also on my list of things to watch. Uh, and, and both that and this were, like, always on my list of things to consume, but never bubbled up to the top. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's kind of same same for me. I'm like, oh, I bet this is an important book, and then I'd read something else. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, I was so immediately, I, guess... I was immediately just struck. I'm not trying to jump in, but like, I was immediately struck, like, because the only other book by him I'd written was only other book by him 
breakfast at Tiffany's. And this seems like a crazy other swing of the pendulum. So. Mm. It is very different <laughs> from, very. <laughs> from a romantic comedy. Yes. <laughs> I guess if you, if you would call Breakfast at Tiffany's a romantic comedy, as I was saying that, I was like, hmm, not sure that that's uh, accurate. But anyway, very different. <laughs> um, so I, I have consumed quite i had never read this book before either but i've seen in cold blood like a lot Mm -hmm. um and i i consume quite a bit of true crime on my own what was it like for you guys kind of going back to the the er format of um this kind of like making making the true crime feel like a feel like a novel feel like a story I, I was, like, very fascinated by it as a form because I feel like, I mean, I don't consume a lot of true crime in general. Like, serial is kind of, you know, where I'm at there. Um, and, and reading this as a narrative was very, I, it, at moments it took me out of it a little bit and made it seem unreal, but in other times it like the the humanizing aspect of it made it feel much more real um and like more powerful than it would have been if it were just a like a nonfiction um you know expl- explanation I was just yeah, really wanna... st- Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was just I was just really struck how um even though this book is so old, um I read a lot of true crime and it feels contemporary even now, like even over 50 years later, mm-hmm. you read it and it just like, it, it feels like some of the more modern true crime books. Hmm. I thought that was really interesting. I was like, wow, like, you know, obviously some of the language is, you know, changed slang and stuff, but um, just the, the presentation reminded me of things that have been written even in the last few years. Mm-hmm. I, I will say it was an absolute page turner, like, I, we we had a week to read it, and at first I'm like, eh, I hope it's a quick read or whatever. That was, like, not a problem. One of the things that I thought was fascinating about it is that the murder doesn't happen until you're almost 20% of the way through the book. Mm-hmm. So the care that Capote takes in introducing you to this family... Mm-hmm. and the town where, the, where they're living, it's like Holcomb... Kansas mm-hmm. I I think is really kind of remarkable that he you know makes sure that this is not j- like we're not just reading this for the um like the car crash mm-hmm. factor like this is not just this is not just rubbernecking like it matters that the people he's writing about are people um Although I, I do kind of wonder, be, because it's written like a novel, I, I do kind of wonder how much they become characters rather than people. Um, but it's important, I, either, either way, it's important that we know who the clutters are and that we are attached to them. And like that, that matters for the impact, I think for when the crime actually happens. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I do think that there's a, I think that there's a danger just in true crime in general of 
turning victims into characters in a story rather than like people. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and like everyone involved. Um, I, I don't know, like in this, uh, Perry comes across as a very, he's one of the two killers comes across as much more, um, he, like, both sympathetic and interesting, whereas uh, Hickok, the other killer, seems much more... I guess they're both very well-developed, but you can clearly tell that Capote is much more fascinated in one than in the other, mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot more sympathetic to him uh, without actually, like, excusing yeah. him, you know? Well, and I believe that some of the criticism that he got uh, after the book came out was the way that he... Um, does stretch the truth on some dialogue and kind of fabricates certain encounters between people mm. um, in the effort to tell a compelling story. Mm-hmm. I think that he he got some criticism for making these two men maybe more sympathetic than they should have been. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was kind of interesting for me because as I'm like in the initial pages of of their story, like when we kind of move from the clutters to these guys, um, they're a little nondescript from each other. You know, they're like, oh, there's guys. And it moves, and as it moves on, just like how different these men are from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, you know, in my in my opinion, in my reading of it, you marry and he's like, oh, and he's sensitive. And then you kind of read about his relationship with his family, and you're like, oh, he's this very dangerous person. And you're reading about uh, Hickok, I think I'm saying that correct, uh, and you're like, oh, this guy's a bad, you know, this guy's a bad dude, and then it talks about kind of this amazing, like, weird, like, good school career, and, like, still visits his parents, and it's just, it's very complicated, because you think you kind of know these are these people. The, the further the book and you're like, you know, they were kind of manipulating each other as well, like pretty heavily. Yeah. Um, and then Capone, you as well. Like, oh, how sympathetic these are, but like, no, they're really kind of monsters. I know that a lot of people have commented on his uh, re- uh, relation to the men, like how he interviewed them, and and even his like friendship with them being kind of um, too close to them, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a reader, I thought that was very interesting because I feel like prior to this, there wasn't a lot of humanization of these people, um, which is important to remember that, you know, there is no boogeyman, like, right. Everyone who's a criminal was a person first and foremost. Um, but it was also kind of hard to read that. Cause I'm like, Oh, like you, you know, it's hard to read kind of someone's descent into something so terrible. Yeah. I, I was well, a, a little tangentially, I was interested at the end when he was talking about one of the other killers on death row, who was, um, you know, it, like a lot of them clearly had things that we would nowadays like diagnose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even at the time were like probably diagnosed, but didn't pass the, um, the legal test that was required to, um, have them convicted of, uh, you know, insane. Um, so it, it was sort of fascinating to see like a third person. Um, as well at the end of the book. Uh, yeah, Mar- Martha, you were going to say something. Um, yes. How important do we think it is for us to see the perpetrators of these crimes as sympathetic? Because I'm kind of like Jake mm-hmm. Peralta in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Right. Like, 
cool motives still murder. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it is an incredibly thin line because I do feel like for a long time, and I'm a, I'm a big, uh, a big John Douglas reader, right? Like from the FBI. And so his whole thing was, you know, crime. And it, it's not true exactly, but he's like, oh, crime changed at this one point in time. And um, crime didn't really change the way we talked about crime change. We talked about stranger danger and about kind of bumps in the night, you know, p- people being born bad, this kind of thing. It's important to be sympathetic insofar as we understand that one can make the decisions that lead them to this undoable thing. Because susceptible, you know, we're all susceptible to actions that would define us and destroy us. And I think that's, and then the line is, but then does that excuse it? Because obviously not. I'm really interested in that weird in-between place where it's like, you do want to know these were people with stories, with families, because I feel like that's sort of a, sort of a, ah, like anyone you see on the street is a few actions away from the saying. It does, it's not like you have to be born special or evil, you know, um, and I think that's important to talk about, especially in regards to mental health and, you know, contracts we make with one another. But as a narrative, which is where we're on, um, you you know, you obviously don't want to be like, oh, that poor man, he was so troubled. That's why he killed these four people. I mean, no, I, I'm, yeah, I don't go that way. Like you said, like, cool story, still murder. Um, yeah. I don't know. I. I'm a li- I'm probably a little too philosophical about it because I realize these are real people. These are real cases. These are real consequences. But there is something deeply interesting about that turn from just a person to, you know, infamous, in fact. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like Capote does a good... <laughs> uh, I, I feel like Capote does a good job in this at... Because I, I never once feel like you know like you're saying like cool cool motive still murder i'm like i'm never like oh these poor men um they don't deserve to you know like be punished like no they deserve um it's more just interesting at like capturing the idea that like it humanizes them and i think that's important because when dealing with life and death matters it's important to think of everyone involved as human rather than like as some inhuman monster um and so i i was yeah i was very torn on it because it's like they're they are bad people committing bad acts um and like that is the choices that they're making and they need to like you know there are consequences for your actions um, but sort of getting in their headspace of, like, their mm-hmm. rationalizing of why they're making these choices helps understand, like, how other people are also making, like, like what, like, seeing what their thought process is throughout the, you know, not just the, um, the murder, but, like, their subsequent couple months, like, just ha- driving around, uh, living in Mexico, um, was interesting as a way to be, like, they like they have ration or like not rationality but like they have purpose in their choices like they they know what they're doing and they're doing it for a reason does that make sense i would like to 
Yes. And something I would like to put a pin in for the moment, but come back to after we've explored our other homework is the tendency that our current culture has to romanticize these figures. Mm. So just keep that in mind. Um, but for the moment, I would like to move on to continuing chronologically. I would like to move on to Zodiac. Sarah, do you mind giving us a real quick introduction to Zodiac? Sure. Um, Zodiac uh, was a 2007 film based on the book by the same name uh, by David Fincher. And um, it, it chronicles the beginning of the Zodiac letters, which were arguably the only really standout thing about um, his crimes were these letters. And it chronicles all of the people sort of investigating it. And also it it goes pretty deep into the crimes themselves and, and the victims. And it, it spans almost a decade. Um, and it, it, it was, I watched it recently, I rewatched it recently with my husband who hadn't seen it and he couldn't believe um, how many known names were in it. Like it's this, it's quite a cinematic mm. feat as well as an interesting story. Um, and the most interesting thing about it is something I learned recently because I, I watched it again and then I read a little bit about it. And at the time it came out, they didn't know how to market the movie because they didn't want to sell it as a slasher film because it's not. But they thought that just being a true crime story would be too boring because in 2007, people weren't as interested. And that's fascinating to me because it's a new movie, I think. So. Yeah, now, nowadays they would just straight up market it as, as a true crime movie and make gangbusters. You know what beat it the opening weekend? Wild Hogs. Yeah, I, beat. I oh, saw yeah. that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I cannot let that abide, but uh, yeah. People didn't know how to watch it. They didn't know what it was. They're like, why are we following this investigation if they don't catch anyone? So. Well, and it got it got panned, didn't it? Like, I don't remember this being a... No, it, it was critically... critically it, it was... Critics liked it. Audiences didn't as much. It was very mixed. Yeah. Like, e so... Ebert gave it four stars. It, it generally mm -hmm. got good critical reception. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I had not seen it before I watched it for this podcast because I remember feeling very strongly like I wouldn't like it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, guys, I loved this movie. Yes. It's great. Good. It's a great movie. It's so I well wanted it. I wanted it to be about 20 minutes shorter, but I also feel that way about almost every movie that's being made right now. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't take that as a personal slight on this film. You should make but a t-shirt was... that say 30 minutes shorter, because that is like your trademark. It's the hill I'm going to die on. Um, but yeah, I just, I was watching this, and I couldn't get over the fact where I was like, I am enjoying this movie. And I think it was, I think it was just because I so strongly did not expect to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was just because when it came out, like, based on what I had heard about it, I was like, oh, I'm not going to enjoy that. Fincher tends to be really hit or miss for me. Like, I, you know, I, I think that I'll just skip this one. And yeah, it's a really good movie. <laughs> yeah. I, um, stand... oh, sorry. I, I had the interesting thing watching this. Um, I'd watched it in college and, and loved it. Um and had been, like, itching to rewatch it. So when it was one of the homeworks here, I was very excited about that. <laughs> um, 
I had the interesting viewing experience here where I got about like two thirds of the way through and then um, had, had to pause for a bit and then come back to it. And it's almost two different movies when you stop at that point. Um, because mm. the first part of the movie is everything happening at the time. So it's like as the letters are coming in and as like the murders are occurring. Um, and so you have this real energy behind it of like, oh my God, what's he going to do next? We have to stop him. Um, and then that fails. Obviously they go, they try to arrest, uh, or they arrest someone and, and can't make it stick. Um, mm -hmm. and then you sort of fast forward four years and it's sort of Jake Gyllenhaal doing his investigation in the whole thing. And it's, it's two different movies. Uh, and that's sort of like the dividing line. Yeah, it's like a it's like a deering and like almost like a follow like a part one, part two. Yeah, yeah. And like any other traditional movie, it would have ended with them, you know, obviously if they could have made the story how they wanted it, it would have been ending with arresting um Arthur Lee Allen. Uh right. and Ooh, it's like yeah. and that's the end of the movie. I I stand by the the solid and if anyone quizzes me even a million years from now I'll say it, I stand by the basement scene as being one of the most dreadful yes. like viewing experiences. Even even back when I first saw it in theaters and didn't know what I was watching, right? Yes. I was like, oh, like I wanna run and I am safe. Like <laughs> I'm in this theater <laughs> with my aunt and I wanna run out of here. Um and, and the guy playing that guy is so that. creepy looking too. Oh. It's like, ooh. He's like, I made the posters, and I'm like, no, Jake Gyllenhaal, no. <laughs> that sequence felt of a lot like Silence of the Lambs to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I know that Silence of the Lambs came out well before this one, mm -hmm. um, but I I did feel that at least that moment was kind of borrowing the tone from that film. I felt like I felt like this movie had a very strong opinion <laughs> on um the like I know I know that the Zodiac case is still technically open. Right. But I feel like this movie had a very strong opinion on what it wants you to take away about uh, the Zodiac Killer and those cases. Yeah, and that and... was one of those moments where it's like, you're filming this like a real serial killer's basement. Like, the yeah. whole setting and the squirrels. Yeah. I yeah. almost fell out of my yeah. chair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder how that scene was written in the book. Because I, you know, I haven't read it even though it's also like this really important like true crime book. Um, and knowing that it was knowing that that scene was the author, I wonder if that was like very much emphasized in the book. Like, ah, oh, this guy, you know, scared the shit out of me. Um, and how much of that was directorial, you know, that would be interesting to dig, to dig into. Yeah. Uh, Cause yeah, a lot of the things from his point of view were more italicized probably because they were like literally his POV. Um, for the source material. Yeah, man, I just, I can't get over that movie. Like, it's so good. I just watched it and it's so long and I'm like, I could watch that again. <laughs> yeah, it, it is so long, but like it, I, I know Martha, you're like, everything could be 20 minutes shorter. Right. And I could find some places to cut in this, but like, I, I it was, I'm not gonna watch it anytime soon again because it is so long right. and it's a commitment, but it, it is nice to sort of like luxuriate in it. Mm -hmm. um, Mark I Ruffalo will say, in, oh my yeah. god, movie. holy cow! Those sideburns alone could have won an Oscar. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what happened. There. Um, 
I fast forwarded through the sequence of the woman and her baby getting picked up on the road mm. because I was so convinced that something right. terrible was going to happen to that baby. And I was like, right. I can't, I can't watch <laughs> right. that. Right. So I was actually, I was, I, I thought it was lovely that nothing did, but I did skip that sequence. Yeah. No, I, I'd forgotten that sequence for a second. And as it happened, I'm like, Oh no, Oh no. And then I'm like, Oh wait, Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was rough. That was rough. <laughs> I just, I, I do occasionally with movies, I, I have, like, I, I have stuff that I just don't like watching. Mm -hmm. So, and, and stuff like, I think that, I think it's actually a credit to this movie that the tone was so strong mm -hmm. because like that feeling of dread when it, it, cause that sequence is filmed the same way that all of the other, like when we get to watch the other murders happen, it's filmed the same way. So I was like, something terrible is going to happen. I can like the anxiety and the dread were so strong. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I'm sitting in the Starbucks and I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like to the bookend of the movie, because even though it is so long, it starts with this one crime. Like it literally starts in a car, right. With Hurdy Gurdy playing, which now I cannot listen to that song. Um, and it ends that song and that victim. Like I thought, that was oh i didn't notice cyclical. it was the song huh. now, the the, yeah. intro, the intro and the outro song are the same it's hurdy gurdy and it's this and it's the same man you know 22 years later yeah yeah um and i just like for all that you've seen it really drives home for me because we were talking you know about about the victims especially with the book that, that we read um it drives home that it was like yes this is interesting and oh look at these puzzles but this really did you know how you know loss there was loss yeah i i think it's really important and to have like shown that. yes yeah, like i think it's important to have shown the murders because it it makes it like mm -hmm. you're right that it it contextualizes like the puzzle of the mm -hmm. rest of the movie like the frantic searching for who done it and whatever like mm -hmm. you could have that without the murders but it wouldn't have the same sort of like uh connection and I liked that the, the, the those though those scenes were hard to watch. Um, I don't feel like they reveled in them. I don't I don't know if that if that makes sense what I'm saying. But it, they didn't like the whole thing was we don't want to market this as a slasher movie. Yeah. And and the and the crimes they did show didn't seem like oh you know we're going to show this in this very exploitative way. They were very sad. It was very sad to watch. Yeah. And they were and they were and they were very brief as well, which I think was a, an excellent editing decision. Um, but it was like, these are real, these are powerful. It was like watching it happen for real, which sounds disturbing, but I think it's better than it being this big, dramatic kind of horror movie way to show it. I, I thought it was, um, I thought it I shot, I thought it proved the urgency, basically, and didn't go much further than that. Yes. Like, this guy has to be caught because of this horrible stuff. And we're going to show you that horrible stuff, but so that you empathize, not so that you're like fascinated. Um, I like that they made the killer not interesting, too. They're like, oh, everyone around him is working hard and are good people and are trying to catch him. This guy is just some jerk that writes letters. Like, any amateur could have done it. Like, mm -hmm. they kept saying that. They're like, anyone with a library card could have done this. And I'm like, yes. I'm like, serial killers aren't that interesting. <laughs> like, stop making them interesting. They're not interesting. They're just mean. They're cruel, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I felt like the, the parts where the movie, the parts that the movie was luxuriating in, I think, were the process parts, mm -hmm. like showing, showing the work that went into this. Fincher might be the best director for showing people 
in rooms reading books. Like he's really right. good at at yes. directing research, like boring research. Mm-hmm. Which is why I will always be sad that his girl with the dragon tattoo movie didn't get to be its own franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete. Yeah. Please tell us about a very fatal murder. Great. So we had a book that is actual true crime. We have a movie that is a fictionalized account of a real thing. Um, And we figured with the current explosion of true crime as a popular genre, we should maybe look at some parody or satire examples. Um, There were a couple to choose from. We were thinking of doing American Vandal because that show is uh, great. Um, but Yeah. uh, (laughs) Instead, we went with a podcast because um, I think right now, like the current wave of true crime is really being driven by podcasts rather than by like tv shows um and so uh we assigned the onions a very fatal murder a technically seven episode but one of them is a poignant two-parter um about (laughs) a (laughs) it's about a new york reporter who is who has found the perfect murder to um comment on uh the decline of manufacturing in america and global warming and uh etc you know everything he wants to talk about um begins investigating it twists happen um <laughs> and uh it's it's all just a tone perfect parody of um things like serial or s-town uh or my very fatal murder I appreciated what this podcast was doing. Mm-hmm. I did not find it to be an enjoyable listening experience. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Why is that? Um. Oh, I, I guess before that, like, have you listened to Serial or S-Town or, like, any of the other things that's sort of, like, parodying? Yeah, I listened to, I listened to Serial. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I appreciated what this podcast was doing i actually really loved how directly it engaged with um the morality of what david the the podcaster was doing Mm -hmm. um because there there's a podcast about i think an atlanta georgia serial killer who was killing children oh god yes um but one of the questions yeah one of the questions about that was who is this white guy rolling in with his podcast to like dig up all of this horrible stuff, like Mm -hmm. basically to make a name for himself, which I think is an idea that a very fatal murder is engaging very directly with like how a podcaster can use tragedy for their own, um, like their own means to win a Pulitzer and make a bunch of money. Yeah. Everything about this podcast was like nails on a chalkboard to me. Hmm. Like it was, and I don't mean to say that, like, I think it was not well done. It was just like the combination. I don't know. It It, it was a well done thing that you didn't like. That I did not enjoy experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Is the best way I can say it. Um, And I, 
like I think that what they were doing they did very well mm-hmm. um it was just like the combination of things that was happening made me so angry <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is the point. Yes. So like again, yeah. I think they succeeded. I just was supposed to find it funny, I think, and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I yeah. I don't know. I clearly am in the minority, so I, I would like you guys to talk about your reactions to this podcast, please. <laughs> well, I definitely I definitely hear hear 100% what you're saying like it is and and I think I'm going to say it from a different side of it because I I did like it it's it's funny but it's also uncomfortable to be seen because I I've had this thought because I think I'm very poignant um I I I cannot express to you how much true crime I read and watch like a ton and the tropes are there obviously and so I had this thought ruminating especially reading in cold blood I'm like and this is going to be so pretentious. I apologize. I'm like, oh, man, like these stories are never about one person. They're about a community and da, da, da. And so then to listen <laughs> to this podcast and he's like, we're America and it's this town. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm the dick. Like, I'm that, per-, you know, there's also a huge comp. Like one thing I liked because I don't feel like this is present in the critical theory of these things is, you know, there's a fascination with the rural here. Yeah. And I felt this. Re- I. I mean, it's obvious for making a murderer to, you know, all these things, all these like little towns or whatever, or even big towns, but like less nice parts of town, let's say. Um, but there was a, a documentary miniseries on Netflix recently called The Innocent Man. And it takes place in a town I went to summer camp in a couple times in Oklahoma. Hmm. And almost That's went to college. That's not scary. Well, I almost <laughs> went to college there, Martha. Um, oh, no. In Ada. But these crimes were like in the 70s, so like it's sort of lore now, which is its own weird thing. But I was just like, when you watch these things from far away, you're like, man, look at this little town. And then when that little town is like within an hour of you, you're like, this seems like someone's condescending to me. Yeah. And um, I like that it was called out here, like to discomfort, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you'd never expect it in this small town because the people are so quaint and cute and sweet. And I'm like, oh, this is super gross. I couldn't understand but... her through her thick Nebraskan accent. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, what is it? It was, uh, oh, she dreamed of leaving to go to NYU. And he's just like describing his own life. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that... Um, I think that's the part that stuck with me is it was it was really addressing that because I don't... You know, I don't think that's talked about a lot that, you know, Martha was mentioning, you know, the, the exploitation factor here. And it's especially strong in these communities where they do make it seem so glamorous. Oh, you're going to be on a on a TV show. You're going to be on this thing. And I'm like, you know, how much are you mining the yokelism here for something mm-hmm. well, interesting? And, and also the idea and like this sort of came up with cereal a little bit where, um, you know, when he first arrives in town, it's like. I found out that the police didn't even have a podcaster on their staff. How could they possibly <laughs> find out? Yeah. Um, I and... will say he said that and I barked out a laugh like a seal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that's kind of also there because it's like these we, we like true crime. Um, but when it's unsolved crimes, it's also a lot of like amateur detective work. Um, and there's a lot of sort of. Is that good? Um 
you know, like, like Serial and S-Town both, and I don't listen to A Very Fatal Murder, but, um, they both had, like, pretty long-reaching repercussions into the lives of the people, um, who either were on it or just were being talked about, um, and, and this definitely sort of, like, holds a mirror up to, to all of that. I did like the big twist, and I, I won't go into it because I want people to listen to this, but the big twist of, of, of some of the time passing, <laughs> and it just, yes. like, it, so I, I listened to this with my husband, who is a known podcast, like, fiend, mm -hmm. and he, like, even not being into true crime, just like those podcast notes, like, I think there's a comment where it's like, on next week's episode, you know, someone tells me where Ira Glass has been or something. <laughs> yes. And, like, he's, like, he's dying. He's like, this is, he's like, this is, like, a send-up of just podcast culture in general. Yes. You know? Well, um, and, like, with all the ads and, like, the fake ads and everything, too. <laughs> box box. They'll bring you a box. <laughs> What was the one about sand? Oh, sand camp. They'll drop some <laughs> yeah, sand and you camp. can do whatever you want to with it. <laughs> That's your business. <laughs> when he's talking to the grieving parents, and he's like, if you get box box, I get one free. And they're like, what? Yeah, can, can you read this ad copy? It was very fun. I like that the episodes were short, too. Like, I like that it was snappy. It hits the high points. Um, you know, I like that you can listen to the whole podcast in about an hour-ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that was fun. Um, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I, I had to look up a couple words. I didn't know the word trenchant, <laughs> um, which is a big, good journalism word, but, um, but yeah, I, I actually don't, I actually haven't listened to Serial. Uh, I've listened to one episode and it was back when it was new. Mm -hmm. Um, but Ironically, this makes me want to listen to, like, a real one, <laughs> you know? Serial is really good. It's also, like, exactly what this is, yeah. is parodying, so. Just serious and not. Yeah. Right, not as. Uh. I also, I love how every, like, troop, like, these awful crimes, whether it's a, whether it's a show or podcast, usually not a movie. I'm going to stick with show or podcast. They have like the bounciest, like cutest music. And that is so weird. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like, it's yes. always like some guy on like a keyboard and a ukulele. And I'm like, this is super weird. Like they're talking about like a triple homicide. <laughs> why yeah. is this? The, why is this the bouncy outro music? Um, so, so some of the things I'd like us to, to kind of ruminate on, um, True crime has been around as a genre for a long time. Um, we mentioned at the top of the episode that kind of as long as there have been people, we have enjoyed hearing about people who do crime. Um, but I, I think so. This is not this is not a new thing. But what I do think is new is this question of accessibility. And also, Sarah, we were talking before we started recording um, about how true crime used to be a genre that was consumed and created primarily by women. Um, and I don't know that that is as true now, um, because of that accessibility question, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the form of podcasts. Um, I'm losing the thread of what I was going to ask, if anything. Um, but I do wonder, Sarah, if you would mind rehashing a little bit about what we were talking about 
um, before we started recording. Sure. And um, one thing, we we also talked about this a little bit before, and I'll, I'll use this line again because I, I think it applies. Um, the biggest changes in the popularity of this genre, I believe, are scientific advances, like DNA, mm. um, and also people believing women. <laughs> um, yes. And their stories. Some um, of the time. <laughs> you know, more, right? It's always more, more. it's never the most, but it's more. Um, yeah, so my I, the, the anecdote I used was like my grandmother was really into true crime. And she would read these like big novels and they were always, you know, these stories, you know, kind of we've talked about in these little towns, usually, you know, a young woman that had been killed. And these, these stories were really popular, um, you know, from, from way back. Like I'd, I'd even say lightly predating in cold blood, but they, they showed up as like um, magazine articles or as hmm. like kind of dime store, like paperbacks kind of thing. And they were sold to like, you know, women doing their shopping. They were in the grocery store. Um, and I wish I had found this link before coming on, but I remember about a year or two ago, there was an article about, you know, just how many fans of this genre were women. And um, it was in relation specifically to My Favorite Murder, that podcast. And just one of the social theories about that is because women are most likely to be intimately involved with a victim, either their mother or their spouse, or the victim themselves, um, that that was kind of the draw of this um, of this interest. And I feel like with um, podcasting and, and the streaming services, it's kind of been this niche thing that has just opened up a lot bigger. Um, and it's interesting, too, because so many of the most compelling true crime stories are still these same stories from the 60s and 70s, you know, of these kind of old cases and the fascination with that, but they were fascinating then hmm. too. You know what I mean? Like these were, these are fascinating cases nationally when they happened, but now we're revisiting them and we're still like really interested in them. And I find that an odd thing too, that we're, you know, that we're still into these um, pre-technology cases. I, I didn't speak. think about that, but that's that's a good point that like Zodiac came out in 2007 and it's about a crime that occurred in like what, 69 or 70? Um, yeah. And and like In Cold Blood, we're still going back to and mining it, um, you know, in various ways. Um, I almost I almost asked if we could read I'll Be Gone in the Dark for this. Yes! I, I did too, actually. <laughs> uh, which is for any of our listeners who are not familiar with that, it's like uh, Michelle McNamara's true crime book about the hunt for the Golden State Killer, um, who they caught actually mm -hmm. right, like right after or concurrently to the book being published. Um, oh. Michelle McNamara, Michelle McNamara was Pat Oswalt's wife who died very tragically young, um, and this book was like her passion she much like sarah koenig on serial uh was engaged in this lifelong investigation of finding the golden state killer who was a, a serial killer in california um and i i don't know that it has been acknowledged by the police but i feel very strongly that because she was so dedicated like the mm -hmm. the the concurrence of the publication and them finding the guy cannot 
be a coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, I think that part of the reason they were able to find him was her insistence of not allowing this case to die. Hmm. Um, and she writes about the victims in such an amazing way as well. Um, yes. It's what stands out about her book to me is that she's like, you know, whoever this guy is, like, screw him, but like, let's talk about these people. And yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely think that her investigation led the investigation in a lot of respects. The other I don't thing, remember what well, we were the, talking about before that. <laughs> uh, the, the other thing which, which, Sarah, you had mentioned uh, sort of at the end yeah. of, of the thing you had said earlier was that a lot of these cases um, are pre-technology. And I think that that's yeah. sort of a, a, a crucial point for, I guess, like visualizing and, and thinking about, um, you know, how, how different all of this would, would be if there was cell phones and, um, mm -hmm. you know, the ubiquity of cameras and everything. Um you know, thinking of In Cold Blood, uh, you know, going around and, and the guys like buying their various supplies and whatnot and then having to go and ask the gas station attendant like, hey, did you see these people come in? Uh, whereas nowadays it would just be like video footage. Um, well, and like you could you could pull a fingerprint, right? You could look for a hair sample like yeah, you yeah. could actually invent you could actually investigate a crime scene like, more fully than just looking at it and going, hmm, you know, this is yeah. bad, you know. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, I technology it. on both ends. Like, there's the forensic yeah. technology, but then there's just, like, the communications technology um, and the sure. surveillance technology. Like, you have, you know, you have Facebook Live, you have, you know, you have mm -hmm. lots of, lots and lots of ways to kind of track crime, which maybe is the other reason it's becoming so popular is because everyone feels like they can help. Maybe that's too optimistic of me to say. Uh, but... That's that's a good point because like with with serial, um, everyone like yeah, I, I think on Reddit there was probably like a serial subreddit and everyone was like doing their own investigation, um, and being able to talk with each other and and talk like with Sarah Koenig about it in real mm -hmm. time. I think was a really huge sort of driving force in its popularity. Um, and that's the kind of thing that couldn't have happened before, uh, you know, social media and mass communication. Absolutely. And it makes you kind of um, appreciate. I do because, you know, we're talking about true crime. We're talking about these bad things. But I, I do think that generally and genuinely people want to live in a safer society. And I feel like generally and genuinely people want to um you know, eliminate and prevent these things from happening. As fascinated as we are with them, you know, all of us want to solve this crime and put these people off the streets, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that is, again, I'm like overly optimistic often, but I think that's sort of um, maybe another selling point of this genre is that there's a lot of hope in it, um, I think. One of the things that I brought up earlier that I wanted, that I said I wanted to come back to was the danger, I think, in true crime of causing the audience to over-sympathize with mm -hmm. the, uh, the criminals. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, Sarah, you mentioned this when we were talking about Zodiac. One of the things that I really, that I did really appreciate is that they don't do that in Zodiac. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the killer, whoever he is, um, is not an object of sympathy 
mm-hmm. he is not an object of romanticizing. He's not attractive. He's, you know, he, he is not somebody who Fincher or the, the rest of the movie makers are asking us to understand or even like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am thinking very specifically about sort of the internet phenomenon of... So they're making a Ted Bundy movie... Yes. And they think they have cast Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. What? Yeah, Zac Efron. Yes. I, yep. I like I like Zac Efron a lot. I think he's underappreciated. But one of the things that is now kind of happening are people talking about Ted Bundy as an attractive object of desire. And I, I think that that's a really dangerous road to go on. Like, obviously... Obviously, when you're talking about somebody who, like, their charisma was part of their whole deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, l- like a Manson thing. thing. Yeah, but so yeah. It's, it's one thing to talk about that sort of objectively and another thing to be like, oh, We're going to cast this that... literal handsome person yeah. to play him. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I kind of cut off your thought there. <laughs> that's okay. I was just going to say, Penn Badgley plays... Um, a stalker slash serial killer person. I don't know. I haven't watched you, Um, but he was on Twitter. People were tweeting at him serious, like in a very creepy way being like, I wish you'd stalk me and kill me. And he's like, please stop. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not what this is. Yeah. That's not what this, like, please, please stop talking about my, like my character is a terrible person. Please stop. Yeah. Right. Please stop what you're doing, mm-hmm. which I appreciated because, yeah. yeah, I I get very concerned when people are like, Loki's just misunderstood. No, mm-hmm. Loki was going to commit genocide. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. let's, let's all just slow our roll here. Did either of you guys watch the Ted Bundy kind of mini series on Netflix recently? No. Okay. No. So, like, I did... Um, because I, you know, because that's what I do. But they, yep. it's weird because they made a big, and you've probably seen this because it's like a big critical thing right now. They made kind of a big deal about how handsome he was. And even the judge when he sentenced him said, oh, what a promising young man. It's unfortunate you went this way. Mm. And then the critical response is, it's very easy for a, you know, even slightly, I'm not even going to say attractive. I'm going to say symmetrically faced because that's really what yes. it is. It's, it's you know, for a slightly symmetrically faced person who's white, middle class, and a man to get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that doesn't make him special or gorgeous or anything. But literally the first episode of that show is called Handsome. And like, oh, he seduced these women. And even in jail, they wrote him. And I'm like, that's irrelevant. You know, <laughs> uh, it's weird because I, I, I feel like people are fascinated by people that seem normal, quote unquote, that do these things. But he wasn't normal. Like... That, I'm I'm 100% with you. Like that should not be the takeaway. The takeaway shouldn't be oh, like some serial killers are handsome. Like yuck. Like that's the weirdest take yeah. on that on yeah. that subject. Um, but I mean that's not. I mean, it's a whole other thing. But like, so many serial killers get a lot of women fan mail and things like that. Um, and I I think that that's an interesting thing to address, but like not by not in this movie way, not in this acknowledgement on screen that they that they might have had some kind of you know physical charisma. Um, 
that is really gross. Um, that's my note. That's really gross. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so I think I think what we should all seek is understanding without sympathy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is mm-hmm. what I is what I like to refer to it. Like my mom and I fight about this a lot because she will like if we if we go see a movie where she was like I I like can't with this character for whatever reason and i'm like well i understand what they did but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that i agree agree with it Mm -hmm. um and i think that that's that's kind of what i think the goal of true crime should be like i i would like to understand maybe why people do what they do or that people do what they do Mm -hmm. without without feeling sympathy for them because mm-hmm. as we said cool motive yeah. still murder like, <laughs> in, in addition to feeling sympathy also just glamorizing it um i feel like yes. in, in cold blood it is not a glamorous lifestyle that these guys are living um mm-hmm. and i think that's important uh whereas like the ted bundy is definitely much sketchier because of that um, I am honestly, there are two Charles Manson movies coming out soon, and I am concerned. Hmm. Yeah. Serial killers are boring. Like, that is my, <laughs> that is my mantra. <laughs> they are boring. They're usually just white, you know, and like a little bit of money. Like, that's it. <laughs> and no, um, like, and no, no social morality. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That seems like a good place to end. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say. <laughs> um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank yes. you. This was this was a massively interesting conversation. Yes. Um, if you would like people to be able to find you online, where could they do so? Well, I have a, a Facebook and Instagram page for my art, which is Tiny Revelations. Um, on Facebook, it's just Tiny Revelations, and on Instagram, it's Tiny Dot Revelations. Her Instagram is super cute. I highly recommend following it if you enjoy small happy things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pete, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Pico three thousand P I K O three thousand Politics and Pop Culture. Uh, and you can find me everywhere at Magical Martha. Uh, you can also read my newsletter, uh, which I publish uh, public on Twitter. Um, and you can subscribe to it by going to tinyletter.com forward slash um, Magical Martha. My next couple of issues are probably going to be very focused on my actual impressions of the Oscar movies. I did one that was sort of a survey of my impressions of the nominations. And now that I'm actually starting to see them, I can get a little bit more into like fine, uh, fine detail opinions. Uh, This is the part of, this is the time of year when I get to pretend that I'm a movie critic. So (laughs) I I have a lot of, I have a lot of feelings and I get to share them with the world. Thanks to the internet. You can find, (laughs) you can find the show. Um, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. We have just discovered that we are not on Spotify, so we're going to look into how to do that. 
Uh, you can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. Um, on Facebook, we have a Did You Do Your Homework Facebook page. I believe we're the only thing that comes up when you search for that, so we should be pretty easy to find. Uh, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com with questions, comments, concerns, feedback, suggestions for other shows. Ask to be a guest. We'll probably say yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Our next episode, which is dropping in two weeks, is called Do We Heart the 90s? Uh, this is sort of a companion piece to our uh, episode from a couple weeks ago about nostalgia, where we're looking at pop culture created in the 90s about the 90s and trying to really analyze what is currently being understood with a lot of nostalgia through hopefully... Uh, non-rose-tinted glasses. So we're taking off our nostalgia lens and trying to really look at the, the decade uh, through media that was being created during the decade to get a good sense of it. So we're assigning three pieces of media, all of which were created in the 90s. Uh, the first classic horror movie, 1996's Scream. Um, next, a couple episodes of Boy Meets World. This is an absolute dealer's choice situation where uh, pick and choose your favorite episodes or if you've never seen it, like me, um, I don't know, I'll probably watch the first episode and then pick some random ones. Uh, and then our final uh, homework assignment, uh, assigned by future guest Josh Brown, who's been on the show before, um, is the graphic novel series The Max. Uh, that's The Max with two X's, written or at least uh, created by Sam Keith. Um, going for the graphic novel of that one. Yay! Class dismissed. <laughs> Class dismissed. <laughs> ah, you. I was so close. <laughs> oh, we're going long on this one. Yep. Um, have fun, Pete. <laughs> <laughs>